0: 75-year-old male back pain. 211 Silver Hollow Road between Lane Road and Cross Patch Road. Repeat, male back pain.
1: Road. If you've ever interacted with a paramedic, it was probably during a medical emergency, a scary situation. But paramedicine involves more than just 911 calls and ambulance rides. They provide care in emergency and primary care settings, but the scope of their role has grown over time and continues to expand today. They can be found working in hospitals, clinics, educational and public health institutions, and even in advocacy settings.
2: In this episode, we'll be discussing the different types of paramedics and the differences between their work in urban and rural settings. We'll also explore the systemic issues that affect them as workers and us as patients, and the important work our guests are doing to address these issues. Although Raw Talk Podcast is based in Toronto, we were fortunate enough to have guests with a diverse perspective on paramedicine across Ontario, British Columbia, and Alberta, and they also reflected on paramedicine services nationwide.
1: Before we dive into this episode, we would like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land.
2: We would also like to acknowledge the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression against Indigenous peoples, and the barriers to health care that are still experienced by Indigenous peoples in Canada today. My name is Raina.
1: And I'm Maddie, and this is episode 115 of Raw Talk Podcast. So what does a paramedic actually do? To answer this question, we spoke to Cheryl Cameron, a paramedic based in Alberta. She is also the Director of Operations at Canadian Virtual Hospice, a PhD student at Monash University, and a Senior Fellow with the McNally Project for Paramedicine Research.
3: We actually have a lot of people that work in the discipline of paramedicine that are in other contexts. So we have people that work, for example, on flights, um, which can be for interfacility transfers or for emergency calls, on um, fixed wing or rotary. So most of the country has critical care paramedics on helicopters, for example, that help do interfacility transfers between facilities um, or are doing emergency calls as well, especially in remote areas or bringing kind of that critical care out to the field. Um, we also have paramedics that are working across um, lots of other scopes of practice, Um, in different settings like hospitals, in primary care, um, in long-term care settings. Definitely now paramedicine uh, has expanded outside of kind of that emergency response or emergency role.
2: People might find it surprising
3: that there are different
2: types of paramedics. Melissa Vos, an advanced care paramedic in British Columbia, tells us more about the difference between an advanced or critical care paramedic and a primary
4: care paramedic. A primary care paramedic is a bit of a generalist. Uh, they go to uh, just about every call that you can imagine. You know, um, if you fall down and break your wrist and you need a paramedic to help you out with that or you break your ankle while you're skating or something, a primary care paramedic team can come, they can help you splint it, they'll get you on the cot, they can give you some pain medication, take you to the hospital. Um, advanced care paramedics are an extra two years of training on top of that. And we specialize in cardiac problems, respiratory problems, um, and then neurological problems such as stroke, seizure, et cetera, or just an altered level of consciousness, as well as a little bit of extra training in pediatrics and neonatal resuscitation and emergency childbirth. So advanced care paramedics can also, they have like advanced cardiac life support training. So we can run cardiac arrest management, very similar to how they would in the hospital. We can administer the same cardiac drugs. Uh, We can intubate. We can defibrillate. And so an advanced care paramedic has all of those tools.
1: To describe how the paramedic role is changing, we spoke with Amr Alana, a paramedic who has worked both in Ontario and B.C. He completed his master's at the Institute for Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto, where he studied the evolving role of paramedics in healthcare.
0: What community paramedicine broadly has been is any non-urgent and non-typical function of a paramedic. So, for example, in some places it involves scheduled wellness checks and scheduled care for individuals who might have a social or housing-related need, or any kind of um, home care need that hasn't been met, or in a nine-one-one call it was identified that uh, hey, this individual is um, does not have enough food at home, or is not taking the medications, maybe needs a reassessment, and has fallen through the cracks. Referrals go in. Community paramedic plus or minus other practitioners would. Go in in a more scheduled manner and do that assessment, and that evolved again from the grassroots over the over multiple decades. But then there's also community paramedicine program that programs that that target primarily low acuity patients uh, on an urgent care basis. So people who have um, a, an unscheduled emergency but are not considered highly acute. How do we provide care options for them in the community? Whether that's through primary care or urgent care. Or, Um, etc so it's the reason I highlight those two options those two examples is because they're actually quite different but they're still in 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 different communities they might both be called community paramedicine Um, so it's a nebulous term it hasn't had a lot of definition generally speaking it's been paramedics doing things that are not purely trauma and and acute emergency but I would argue that that's just that's 95 percent of the job anyway uh, so I don't like the term community paramedicine. There's a lot of debate within the paramedic industry, but I do, I do think that we're kind of missing the boat if we try and carve off community paramedicine into its own thing. Um, but there is disagreement amongst researchers about that. I find that in a lot of the world of, of healthcare research and, and healthcare role definition, people tend to guard their professional turf. Um, whereas in in reality, a more team based approach to care is what's needed because uh, trying to trying to splice things into specialties has not worked in the past, uh, and that that's why my research ended up looking at how does the health work how, how do paramedics fit into this health, shared health workforce, and and how can some of those frameworks help us think about um, filling those gaps in care in the community?
1: What are some challenges that you anticipate paramedics might face? when we're moving more towards integrated care?
0: Yeah, I mean, there there's many. So one of them is probably a shared challenge with other health professionals, uh, including nurses and OTs and PTs. And uh, integrated care does, the research at least speaks about having a health workforce with a shared culture. Um, and it's a fine balance between a shared culture and shared um, goals amongst the health workforce, as well as having distinct professional identities. Um, so I think one challenge is, is learning to um, almost deconstruct your attachment to a professional identity and and be feeling more like you're part of the health system and part of a health team and that's a I think that's a shared responsibility amongst all health professionals if integrated care is to work. Uh, another challenge uh, for paramedics specifically is is definitely education. Um, Educational standards vary across the country in Canada and across the world as well. Um, And there hasn't historically been a lot of emphasis on the the foundations of primary care and, and, you know, more thorough assessment that's not leading to an emergency decision. Uh, The care models have historically been based on emergency medicine, um, which really focuses around what can I intervene in right now uh, towards zooming out and saying, you know, what what is the social and health context that an individual is living in and how do I play into that? Um, so that that's, that's one gap would obviously be education. A third one uh, tends to be regulation. And that's probably true for other professionals as well. But the state of regulation uh, of paramedicine across uh, Canada does vary significantly. In some provinces, they are Uh, They've got a self-regulated college, uh, which makes it a little bit easier in some ways to to implement change, um, but also harder in others because colleges are also known to be uh, risk averse and anything that's community care tends to, coming from an emergency care world, there's a a risk aversion to leaving people in the community and having them make decisions that might not be completely safe um, because the safest thing is a hospital. Uh, I disagree, but that it, that tends to be the the mentality in in the emergency care world. Uh, so those are some of the things. It's you know education, regulation, shared workforce, culture.
2: We just heard about regulation challenges between provinces, but what about the challenges that paramedics face within provinces?
1: Can you tell us about? maybe some of the unique challenges or uh, scopes of work that come with working in very, very small communities as opposed to midsize or larger ones.
4: And so sometimes the logistics involved in getting to somebody who has called 911 and needs uh, paramedics to help them are quite involved, particularly in the more rural communities. So you can have people on a fishing boat, for example, who need assistance, or people who are loggers in the middle of a forest who need assistance, hikers way up in Cape Scott who've been attacked by a cougar, you know, like these people need our assistance and the logistical challenges involved in rural um, paramedicine mean that we need to get to them, we need to treat them, and then we need to get them back. And it's pretty astounding uh, once you like are exposed to how many steps there are involved in that. <laughs> Uh, It can be quite mind-boggling. And then some of the other challenges sort of involve, like weather can impact whether or not you can access a patient. Uh, Rural paramedics in BC are considered and treated a little bit like uh, second-class citizens or lower on the social hierarchy within the ambulance service itself. Um, They get paid less. Uh, they have less access to benefits and um, they don't have a, they, a lot of the time don't have a guaranteed income. So that can be quite challenging if you're working remotely and you feel like you're putting your heart and soul into your work, uh, but you're not you don't feel as highly valued by the social network that surrounds you.
1: Not only are paramedics the first point of contact for most people needing life-saving care, but they are also increasingly involved in end-of-life care. As the Director of Canadian Virtual Hospice, which is a national organization in the palliative care space, Cheryl Cameron gives us a unique perspective on that role and how it was established.
3: Sure. So some of the work that I've been lucky to be involved in over about the last 10 years of my career is really around implementing palliative care approaches into paramedicine. But we haven't necessarily had the education or the awareness around kind of the appropriateness of what palliative care is, what's the best way to apply those approaches. So historically, uh, if you called 911 and a paramedic arrived, we would take you to hospital like that is what we would do. And so that approach really doesn't jive with patients who are potentially calling in symptom crisis or just need some supports, but their whole care plan is really organized around wanting to stay at home, wanting to have support at home. So um, I was really privileged to be able to lead some work in Alberta in um, developing education for paramedics around providing a palliative care approach and then building the operational supports and pathways for paramedics to actually implement that in practice And then that work um, that I was part of in Alberta, there was also work going on um, in Nova Scotia looking at the same thing. And so I've been really privileged to be involved in a national spread collaborative over the last five years, uh, which was funded by Health Care Excellence Canada and the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer to really take that approach that was developed in Nova Scotia and Alberta and in Prince Edward Island. And provide support to other provinces and other EMS services across the country to kind of build the same thing, but in their own jurisdictional context and really embed those approaches for palliative care into paramedicine. And it's um, a piece that's really, I think, pushed the profession a bit as well, because it has in some jurisdictions, for example, Um, broken down some of those legislative barriers about allowing paramedics to treat patients in community and then leave them at home, uh, to not transport patients potentially to acute care centers where some of that was pretty legislatively ingrained in the past. And so this project, for example, in a number of jurisdictions has really pushed some of those barriers, which will help with the other things that need to happen for paramedics to be able to provide the best care to different kinds of patients in community as well especially with a lot of the healthcare system focusing on not trying to take people to emergency departments, trying to shift more care into community, talking about multidisciplinary care in the community setting, integrated care in the community setting. Paramedics are one of those vehicles where historically we've just taken people out of community into the emergency department, but that isn't always the best thing for each patient, depending on their situation. A lot of times we're taking people away from their community supports. A lot of times the services they need actually aren't um, well met in the emergency department context, but a lot of those uh, we lacked the connections, I guess, as a, as a profession as and as a service um, with a lot of other community supports. And so this work has really also started to um, de-silo some of the services that are are there for patients, but historically have been kind of delivered in very like silo ways if EMS comes we do this you might get one response if you were to go to your primary care physician you might have a different response if you're getting um, services with a palliative care physician or a palliative care consult team in your home it might look different as well so it's it's really about um, trying to identify what's best for that patient what their needs are and then what are the services that are around that can kind of help in a more coordinated fashion
2: paramedicine is changing to better serve the community but what's being done to address inequities within the profession? Melissa tells us more about how gender disparities manifest in paramedicine.
4: We highly value our primary care paramedics and the ones that are women, we just want to make their uh, working conditions as best as they can be. Although the gender diversity is improving on the PCP level, it still hasn't been reflected on higher license levels uh, in leadership roles or in management quite yet. So 40% of BC paramedics, uh, PCP paramedics are female. And in the advanced care paramedic realm, it's 19% are female. And then only 12% of critical care paramedics are female. And then it depends on what level of management or leadership you're looking at, but we have, uh, for example, we have eight or 10 paramedic practice leads in BC and only one of them is female. The higher up you go in leadership roles, the greater the gender disparity. Often our work involves a very dynamic, time-sensitive uh, medical emergency that requires like a leadership style that's pretty like direct, quick, to the point, uh, and doesn't. there isn't always a lot of time to take care of people's feelings, for example. But women are expected to be nice and to do the emotional labor of caring for others. Uh, while also in the leadership role. And then they have this like unspoken expectations that you should be a certain type of leader on a dynamic scene, but also it's challenging because you, you have the like likability bias. You have people wanting you to be nice <laughs> and take care of them on scene, which is also important. And I think that we could maybe meet somewhere in the middle and have everybody expected to uh, interact on in a way that cares for other people's feelings but also maybe just lower the expectations of women doing that emotional labor for others uh, at the same time.
1: Gender disparities also show up in the way female paramedics are treated by their employers, which can go on to affect patient care.
4: So until literally last month, contraceptives were not covered by our extended benefits. There are very few accommodations for pregnancy and breastfeeding there's not really if you if you're pregnant, and you can do the job great and come to work. But uh, particularly if you own a casual position with BC ambulance rather than a full time position, there's very little to no accommodations for that. And that can be quite challenging. But I think one of the uh, biggest things that we wanted to address was the prevalence of um, sexual harassment in the workplace. And so we kept hearing from women that we worked with, that they had had these experiences, some of them would report most of them wouldn't. And uh, those who did report were quite dissatisfied with the process. And so we advocated what one of the things we advocate for is an improvement in the employer response, but also in the reporting process itself. Um, And we advocated with our employer to uh, hire an external um, company to do a culture review, to look at gender equity as well as other diversity. Uh, So, most of the male paramedics that I work with are petrified of childbirth, And they're trained in it, but they don't like doing it, and they don't like those calls. Uh, They're kind of scared of the female body (laughs) a lot of the time. They're messy. They don't understand it. Uh, And then vaginal bleeding or endometriosis, anything that's uh, sort of a health condition that more often affects women, if only males medical professionals come to treat you while you're having the medical issues that are pertain to these uh, types of conditions, then you won't get the best treatment that's available. You are being provided care by somebody who doesn't have an intimate understanding uh, with your unique medical conditions. And so there's not a whole lot of uh, research or time for the whole medical profession devoted to women's bodies. And the more of us that start working in medicine, the more we'll rattle the cages and the more we'll change it.
2: In addition to working as an advanced care paramedic, Melissa is a member of the Women in Paramedicine Special Interest Group. She tells us more about how the group came about and how she became involved.
4: The Women in Paramedicine Special Interest Group was created, uh, it was the brainchild of my friends, Jennifer Bolster and Shauna Spears. Uh, they were kind of frustrated with the um, with the disparities that they saw, and they had some some ideas on how they could maybe improve working conditions so that the disparity itself would shrink a bit more. And uh, so they recruited three more feminist paramedics that they knew, and I was one of them.
1: Cheryl, too, is pushing for change through academic routes of conferences and publications.
3: And then I guess the last piece that you asked me about was the Women in Paramedicine Leadership Summit. Um, So this was um, an event that we um, were lucky to get a grant for um, to bring a group of people together to talk about um, women in paramedicine leadership. We do have a national magazine called Canadian Paramedicine. And so a group of us have been um, curating articles for that issue over about the last five years. And that prompted some other discussion about hosting an event Um, And so we do see in paramedicine, I think, as as we see in lots of other professions, that uh, there's a lot more women now that are in the workforce, but there's still definitely some barriers and um, limitations on if we're seeing um, women and definitely even um, more diverse people that are making their way up the, the leadership chain and into those decision making kind of positions. And so the summit was really about like bringing people together to have conversations about like what is current state, where are the barriers, what are the opportunities and and where do we need to go to be able to continue to advance the profession and ensure that we're providing, you know, the best care that we can for all of the patients and the populations we see and that our workforce is representative of those patients and populations that we see.
2: Cheryl tells us more about some of the existing gaps within the paramedicine profession and barriers to advanced and continuing education.
3: I think the, the place where paramedics are feeling a little bit of the limitations is around a lot of our um, primary education is still at the diploma level and not at the degree level. Um, and that's a shift that's starting to happen in Canada and has happened in other parts of the world, which is really starting to build that broader um, kind of foundational education that, that offers you these kind of opportunities to move between practice settings and to also build build your career within paramedicine. So Canada, for example, is starting to, to look at degree pathways. There's a couple institutions that do provide applied degrees at the entry level, and there's some more that are coming down the pipe in the future. Um, in other jurisdictions like the UK and Australia, they're significantly ahead of us in those kind of places. So they're starting to be master's level education, PhD programs, which really start to really open up those different opportunities for individuals when it comes to career path, especially not within, just not within the discipline of paramedicine, but also in like you know other parts of health and moving into other parts of health and bringing that perspective paramedics into to other pieces of the healthcare system uh so that's what i think where there there starts to be some limitations but there's also opportunities right now a lot of the um like the primary education if you want to be a paramedic the primary care paramedic education and the advanced care paramedic education happens at educational institutions um when it comes to furthering your education as a paramedic, given that most people do graduate right now with a diploma, uh, there are some pathways that have been built for people to be able to backfill those diplomas to um, bachelor's degree in like applied health sciences and other places. There have been paramedics that have successfully um, been able to get into master's programs by um, kind of doing the advanced student approach where you can uh, build a portfolio and also like talk about your work experience and whatnot to get into a master's program. So right now that's where I kind of talking about that wayfinding. So Um, There are opportunities. Uh, Paramedics definitely are finding them, but sometimes it's challenging and it is kind of carving your own path out. And a lot of students who have enrolled in different um, advanced education programs in different schools and different faculties have been kind of the first paramedics potentially to, to follow that path. Um, which is good because they've kind of carved out that opportunity potentially for people to follow behind them. But that is where we see limitations in Canada right now is that uh, we don't have master's level programs specifically in paramedicine. We don't have PhD programs in departments of paramedicine
1: yet. The McNally Project is one of the organizations actively working towards providing further academic opportunities and encouraging paramedics to get involved in research. Our guests, Cheryl and Amr, are both involved with the McNally Project, and they help us better understand the goals and objectives of this organization.
3: The McNally Project for Paramedicine Research, and so this is really a grassroots uh, research community that's been um, built here in Canada. It started as a a small group in Ontario, a group of paramedics who are kind of working through some of their more higher advanced education, master's degrees and into PhDs kind of as a study group, but it has really expanded. The McNally Project is now uh, virtual, and uh, we meet kind of every two weeks. And the community is really about fostering um, a research community for paramedicine. So, the community can be pretty small if you're going to branch off and start doing a master's degree or a PhD. So, it's really about building that capacity. And so, we have members that are just interested in research. We have people that are doing master's degrees. We have people that are doing PhDs. We have scientists now that have completed their PhDs. And it's really about that research community to to foster collaboration, to uh, provide teaching, learning, and mentoring to paramedics, wanting to learn more about research in paramedicine or starting a research career, to really engage the paramedic community broadly in research. Um, So I've been a member of that group for a couple of years and definitely has been a a really foundational group of colleagues that have have helped support me um, in my current educational endeavors for sure, because I'm now um, pursuing a PhD. Um, but also an opportunity to kind of uh, help and mentor other people that are coming up behind. Because as I mentioned before, with a lot of the base education being diploma based, a lot of paramedics who are wanting to advance their education or their career are really wayfinding um, ways to advance that education because the pathways are not necessarily clear.
2: So what was your motivation for pursuing a PhD and joining the
3: McNally Project? I've always had a pretty diverse career, I would say. Um, while I was working clinically frontline, I worked in a lot of different operational kind of areas. But at the same time, I was also building my experience in education in other parts of my career. So I ended up taking a master's in health sciences education. Um, I've worked in uh, institutions that provide education for paramedics. And so it kind of felt like the next kind of I guess, place that my career needed to go. Definitely there is, um, you know, movement towards shifting our profession towards an entry level to practice degree level. And and for that to happen, we need to have people that uh, have the skills and and the education to be able to support the development of those programs and and the subsequent uh, educational pathways that will fall out of that. So for me, it kind of felt like the right... Thing to do and especially with the uh, McNally project for paramedicine research there's a community here in Canada now of paramedics that have pursued their PhD through different means in different focus areas um, they're starting to carve out those other paths and contribute in other ways to the profession so I think I'm a lifelong learner by by definition for sure.
0: So I mean, my research was driven by uh, as as a practitioner being out in the community and seeing patients that I was ill-equipped to help um, and also seeing them flounder through the health system and not get the services that they need even at hospitals and emergency departments, which begs the question, is that the right place for them? Um, And I know that over the past 20, 30 years um, across Canada and even in other parts of the world, uh, the paramedic sector has, evolved to fill some of these gaps, perhaps not, not well, but it's because no one else was doing it. And it originally originated in rural communities where, um, because of lack of access to services, paramedics started increasing their scope and like providing a bit more uh, of the the wellness checks and checking in on, on your chronic, uh, on patients that have chronic disease, et cetera. And that grew into this burgeoning kind of community paramedicine movement that you see around the world today. But a lot of that is grassroots and is driven by people's needs. Uh, but it wasn't systematically supported. So as someone who's you know out there and, and seeing individuals, all you see is is gaps in care. So that's what drove me to understand: well, if if we're filling those gaps, how do we fill them better? Uh and what do we need to do as a profession to to join our other healthcare colleagues in solving some of these bigger problems in healthcare delivery. And when I mean other colleagues, I mean physicians, social workers, nurses, et cetera.
3: Um, Historically, a lot of the research that's been done in the pre-hospital environment has been done by physicians. And a lot of that research has focused on, you know, things like cardiac arrest, resuscitation survival, um, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, pharmacology. It's interesting to think about this from a broader healthcare perspective to Um, are around some of those, those more, you know, policy based questions, system based questions. Um, What does, you know, safe care look like for leaving people at home? So for example, there's lots of work going on in paramedicine around, you know, who can we potentially leave at home and who can't and are there Better ways to determine that historically we were very much you call we haul even if that wasn't appropriate. Some of the hot topics I think are around you know redevelopment of our system. So right now when someone calls nine one one for the most part, if you call nine one one no matter what you're calling for, we will send you an ambulance right now. So, you know, patients call they may or may not need an emergency ambulance lights and sirens right now and might not need urgent um, emergency or critical care and transport to a emergency department but right now our that's how our system responds if you call 911 we come now with all these resources and there are different opportunities around doing more secondary triage. We have some systems in the country that have already implemented some secondary triage, where there's more clinical um, chats going on with patients about what's really going on. Some are starting to use, you know, video assessments and bringing in the multidisciplinary team there. We might not send a resource right now, or we might send a different resource in a couple hours. Maybe we send a single single paramedic in a in a little SUV instead of a full transport unit to come do an assessment. And then based on that assessment, there might be some more collaboration over the phone or video call with other community service providers, home care with physicians in the community to decide what's the best best treatment plan. When you think about the
1: future and your outlook for the role of a paramedic in the healthcare system, what do you imagine that to look like? Um, Or is there any work that um, is happening right now to advance towards integrated care that you want to highlight,
0: there is lots of good work across the country, uh, especially post COVID. I think COVID was an eye opener for, um, especially, clinical and hospital-based healthcare to see, oh, we can use virtual care for a number of things. Oh, we don't have to you know, force people to make the journey to one setting, and we can provide care in different ways. So that really opened the up op- opened the door for for various care pathways in the community um, there's uh, in terms of paramedics role from I would I would venture to say all 10 provinces are probably ha, probably have some initiatives in place for uh, follow-ups with virtual care or care in the community for low acuity emergencies there's an increased use in point of care testing which opens the door I think the future can there's a there's a lot we can do in the future with point of care testing. Uh, and by point of care testing, I'm talking about everything from urine dipsticks to uh, iStat machines where you can run a quick uh, chem 8 panel or you can do a quick uh, troponin. And it allows you to at least differentiate a little bit better in the field because one of the challenges with any kind of community-based care when moving from an emergency care mindset to community-based is how do you increase the probability that you're keeping someone safe and decrease the probability that you're missing something and the lack of diagnostics has been a big uh, barrier to that and then the, the third I think area of, of opportunity is how do we better work with long-term care and uh, facilities where there is some support available so Nova Scotia is an interesting example um, where they they have a program I think in the Halifax area where they um, are have specially trained paramedics that respond to long term care uh, patients and and even emer- things that might be considered emergencies in a normal paramedic system can be treated in place uh, with follow up care from a physician um, as long as there's appropriate consultation between the paramedic, the nurse there, the physician, uh, and you can set up uh, the services that someone needs in place as opposed to moving the person. Uh, to a hospital or clinical setting. So I think the future holds a lot of that, those care pathways, and a lot of that's enabled by technology and and opening up how we deliver care.
1: Given the exciting future directions that paramedicine is moving towards, what drives you to continue working in this profession?
4: Several of my friends caught COVID in the early uh, months. So it was really scary walking into people's homes and not knowing, is this the one that's going to kill me? Am I going to die? Am I going to get live through this situation? Uh, Am I going to be, you know, like heavily impacted? Will I survive, but still be like sick or disabled on the other side of this? I don't know. And you know, like it was really meaningful work and we've really, I had a lot of gratitude for the citizens of BC who largely stayed home. Um, They banged their pots for us every night for months and months and months on end. It was really meaningful. And uh, I felt like for the first time in my 20 years as a paramedic, I felt seen as a professional. Uh, Prior to that, often paramedics would complain amongst ourselves that we were the, like we were the, the invisible first responders people have started to recognize and value healthcare providers, and we really saw what it might be like without us. So um, we have experienced better funding in the last year or two than, or three years than we have ever seen for uh, pre-hospital care in BC. (laughs) And my entire career, I had thought, oh, someday there will be some major disaster that I'm going to be a part of. I just thought it would be an earthquake rather than a pandemic. Um, but I think that the the appreciation from our citizens uh was helpful, but it's not what kept me in in the
3: profession. The work itself is meaningful enough to keep me here. I've been really lucky to kind of have a diversity in my career path although i'm not clinically seeing patients anymore i did clinically see patients for 15 years of my career and it was amazing i guess to be brought into those vulnerable times of other people's lives and to help them in whatever way that you can and sometimes you know that isn't you know doing a very technical skill or that isn't Um, giving a whole bunch of drugs. Sometimes it's literally sitting with somebody and hearing their story or spending some time with them. And so I think, you know, my clinical time was really important time in my career and has definitely, you know, shaped who I am going forward. I've really had opportunity to have a significant number of diverse roles. I really enjoy um, teaching. I really enjoy mentoring. I had the luxury of being able to precept a lot of students, which is a a really fun time i think to see people their first time in the work environment like coming with their didactic skill or knowledge having come right out of school but now trying to like transition that into clinical practice i think is a really interesting interesting time and we have a significant amount of work to do i think in um supporting new people that are coming out of school and into into the profession and i really liked being in that that mentor role ultimately it has been the diversity and role and the different um, kind of places I've been able to play in the system. And I think the other piece that's really, you know, helped me get where I am is kind of that that continual lifelong learning piece. So that is one piece that when I'm talking to other paramedics about, you know, when you're done your advanced care paramedic diploma, that's not the end. Like, congratulations, that's awesome. Like, great to have you in the profession. Let's, let's go out and, like, help some patients. But at the same time, like, what's next? And, and where do you see yourself going?
1: As always, a very special thanks to our guests, Omar Alana, Melissa Vose, and Cheryl Cameron. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by myself, Maddie, and Raina. Noor, Vina, Raina, and Maddie conducted the interviews. Maddie, Raina, and Olivia helped develop content. Alex was our audio engineer, and Ativa was our executive producer. Keep an eye out for an article written by Christian. Until next time! Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Sciences and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMF, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and be sure to leave us five stars.